Amen. You may be seated uh, at this time and as well. We're going to dismiss our children uh, to go with Mrs. Hodson as they continue kind of a special little thing with the Advent uh, season. So they're excited about that, some cool crafts, and of course, uh, helping them really anticipate what, what Christmas is all about, right? The coming of Christ into the world, God's great gift to us. So we celebrate that. Pray that God continues to work in their hearts there. So I want you to picture something for me. I want you to tell me what comes to mind when you think about going to the dentist. Right? You probably see some kind of neutral colored paint room decor, some old school magazines stacked up, a little dusty. Right? Maybe you can picture the drill, uh, and maybe even hear the high-pitched sound of the drill uh, that will be entering into your tooth decay shortly. Maybe you see a needle, real long needle, uh, coming at your face. What comes to mind when you go to the dentist? You know, whatever you're thinking about, when you think about the dentist, it's probably not a positive thing, is it? Why is that? What is it about the dentist that conjures up those kind of images? It's pain. I think I heard some of you mumble that. The expectation that if you go to the dentist, you will encounter and endure pain. Correct me if I'm wrong. A study was done, interestingly enough, by the University of Turin in Italy. They were doing a study on the relationship between expectation and, and the experience of pain. Basically, over a course of three days, they uh, were giving the patients who came to the dental office uh, an uh, intravenous uh, fluid uh, morphine to basically dull the pain of the uh, procedure that they were having. So the first day they gave morphine, second day they gave morphine. On the third day they told people they were going to give them morphine, but what they actually did was is they gave them an injection of saline. So they got basically a placebo. But they thought they were getting morphine. So anyway, they, they ran the data, they asked the questions about their experience of pain. And you'll never believe what the results were. The people who had received the saline experienced less pain than the people that received the morphine. Some of you don't believe it. To be honest, I don't. It's just what the study shows, Okay. But what it illustrates is the power of expectation, doesn't it? Expectation is a powerful reality, isn't it? To live in the expectation of something is powerful. It has impact on the way we approach life. See, we're living now, uh, 2000. 15, in the midst of a season of expectation. 
right? We're celebrating Christmas, the, the expectation building and remembering that when, when God came into the world through Jesus Christ. And during our Advent series here, we're taking a look at the, the greatest expectation, really, the second coming, the ultimate expectation when Jesus will once again come into the world. This great expectation. And we would assume that having such an expectation would have power. It would have impact. It would have influence over the way in which we deal with the present. Even a present that is what? Painful. Today we continue our series called Great Expectation. We're taking a look again at the fact, as Dan preached a couple weeks ago, that Jesus is coming again. Make no mistake about it. Jesus said three times, the end of Revelation, Behold, I am coming soon. He's coming again. It's our great expectation. And today we see all the more why that expectation is so great. What is great about this great expectation? Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Please come with me there. Let's spend some time there. Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Grab your Bibles. Let's dig in. If the Lord has only provided for you a smartphone, that's okay too. Pull it out, open up the app, and let's look at the Scriptures. That's the point. Let's get into the Word of God and let's continue to see. And many of you have seen this text before. You've heard it a lot, often at funerals, right? To provide hope, to give expectation. I think while many of us may have heard this text a thousand times over, I wonder if God is going to deepen our understanding of it today. Revelation 21, 1-8. through and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard the, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. 
the one who conquers, will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is God's word. And all God's people said, Amen. So, the new Star Wars comes out this Friday night. Dan mentioned that a couple weeks ago. Who cares? I got an amen? Somebody, this is it, I'm done. I got an amen. That's great. Just a personal side note that actually adds no value to the message. No, but it's interesting, right? Like, there's this new Star Wars. But what do we mean by new? I think that's an important question. Because we've been talking about Star Wars for 40 years. What do we mean by new? Tell me, what do we mean by new? What's so new about it? (laughs) There you go, new director. See, when we say new, we're talking about one we haven't seen before. It's, It's never been in existence. This particular episode, or or this particular uh, part in the story, we've not seen it before, right? We don't know it. We know the others, but this is a new one. It's never been in existence. You couldn't see it before. You couldn't experience it. It's new. Newness in terms of time. We see the emphasis right from the beginning in verse 1, 2, and also verse 5, that there's something new that God is doing. So maybe you're taking notes right now, and you're what's so great about these, this expectation? Maybe you want to write this down. What makes it so great is this, that at the second coming of Jesus, God is doing something new. He's making a new community of people who lives in, 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 in a new creation. So write that down. What makes it great is it's new. There's something new about it. Right? I saw a new heaven, a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Verse 5, behold, I'm making all things new. There's something new that God is doing. It's a new heaven, a new earth, new Jerusalem. He's making all things new. Don't miss the word new. But we have to understand what he means by new. He's not saying, it's important, necessarily, that this is new because it's in newness of time, like it's never been before. It's important for us to really understand what's going on in these promises. There's two words that can be used for new. One is newness of time, like uh, somebody went and they built a new house, right? So there wasn't a house there. It was a wooded lot. They cleared the lot. They built the house. It's a new house. Newness of time. It never existed before. But then you could 
uh, also look at uh, what we've experienced over the last year. People come into this building, and you know what they say, interestingly enough? They say, wow, look at you. You've got a brand new facility. Is it new? It's not new. What do they mean by that? It's actually quite old. Well, not old like Poland, like 1050. Like old, like 1950. Right? So what do they mean by new? What they're saying is this. They're making a distinction, and by no means am I saying anything negative about the former church. So please give me the benefit of the doubt here, okay? By no, what they're saying is there's a distinction between the quality of, of the place that it once was and what we, by God's grace, standing on the shoulders of the former church that had worked so hard in this neighborhood, so please, had, had put so much effort into a distinction in terms of its quality. That's the emphasis, right? That's what's meant by this is brand new. It's a radical transformation of the quality of what is here. Please understand the illustration. That's what we see taking place here. It's the word choice that John gives when he says new. It's a distinction of quality. It's not as if, though, this heaven and earth and this Jerusalem, this city, the all thing, as if these things have never been in existence before. But that the, the quality is radically different than the former. The, the, the distinction that's, that's made here is that the new Jerusalem, the new earth, the new heaven, all these new things are radically transformed into a completely new quality. And the emphasis here is that this new heaven, this new earth, this new Jerusalem is eternal in nature. This is an eternal home that John is seeing. This is eternal earth, an eternal heaven. It's not a temporary one that we are experiencing now. You following me? That's what we see here. The new Jerusalem, the new creation, the new earth, the new heaven, and really these new people, which becomes the emphasis of the rest of this passage, these new people, it's not as if they are gone and no more. They've been radically transformed, which most people would say after the pattern of the resurrection, right? just like Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, it's not as if it was a new Jesus. It was the same Jesus transformed, glorified through the power of the resurrection. That's what we see here. When Christ comes again, expect God to bring about a new community, which we're going to look at in a minute, living in a new creation, a distinction of quality. In simple terms, Compared to what we know and experience now, that which God is preparing for us is infinitely more wonderful and enjoyable than our current place and current experience. This is what God has for us when Christ returns. And so immediately I begin to think, how tight do I hold on to this present life? 
How tight do I hold on to all that I have now and enjoy? Is there anything that I'm not willing to let go of for the sake of knowing and enjoying this new creation, this new reality for me that God has prepared? Or am I holding on too tight? I remember being, I remember being uh, in high school, uh, madly in love with the woman in the fourth row over there. And I'm just saying, Jesus, come back, but come back in like 60 years. Because I want to spend my life with her. Like, I want this life. Oh, yeah, Jesus, I'm interested in you. But, but I kind of want a nice life here, too. See, I think that's what's going on in many of our spiritualities, right? We're, we want this life. We want the joys and the pleasures of this life. Yes. And surely we want the joys and the pleasures of the life God has prepared for us. But not if we have to lose this. We want it all. But what we're seeing here is that God is preparing something new, something beyond our imagination, beyond what we could fathom in terms of satisfaction and joy. And so we don't need to hold too tight to the pleasures and the joys and and the temporal blessings of this life. We're willing to let them go for the sake of being a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. God's going to bring about a new community, living in a new creation. The emphasis, for sure, is on the people, right? Look at verse 2. You see, again, this this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We saw last week that the bride of Christ is the people of God, prepared, purified, right? And as the bride comes down out of heaven, the new Jerusalem... Look at what it says. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So what can we expect? What's so great about the second coming of Jesus? Number two, it's this. Expect God to make a home with us as his covenant people. Man, that is profound hope deeply set into the heart of the people of God is a hope and an expectation that one day we will be with God in his presence and the text tells us that that's what makes the second coming of Jesus so great that when he returns and he defeats Satan finally and forevermore throwing the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon into the lake of fire, that we know that when that is accomplished, that God will come to live with us. That the distance that we now experience will be gone. The physical distance we should emphasize. But that God will be physically present with his people. They'll know that kind of nearness. So when we talk about the newness of the new creation, what a part of the newness is the nearness. We're a people near to our God, close to Him, physically. Let me ask you a question. Is that really your hope? Do you want to see God? Do you join with Paul? In that? Like, I count everything else as rubbish. I throw it aside to just know Jesus. 
to see him face to face, to be in his presence. Do you want to be with God? John Piper asks, I think powerfully, a question that rocks my world. Nobody wants to go to hell. Everybody wants to go to heaven for all intents and purposes. We can fight about how to get there and all that stuff. Okay? Nobody wants to go to hell. Everybody wants to go to heaven. But let me ask you a question. Would you still want to go to heaven if Jesus was not there? That gets at the heart of what heaven is all about. Heaven's not just some paradise where we can watch basketball on TV on a couch and eat bugles and just forget about work, not have any responsibilities, just live and do whatever we want to do. Heaven is about the presence of God with his people. That's what makes it so good, so wonderful and glorious, is because Jesus, in all of his glory, is physically present with us there. We're going to be with Jesus. Is that your hope? text says that's what makes this expectation so great, this, this presence of God that is united to his people. But that language is a language we've heard before. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. We've heard that time and time again throughout the scriptures. And so what we see there is this is a fulfillment. This is the, the final moment, the consummation of this desire in the heart of God to choose a people and be with a people all the way back to Exodus uh, chapter 6 when he's redeeming them out of Egypt. I'm redeeming them out because I want to be with them as their God. I want to be with them. They uh, be my people and I will be their God. Leviticus, same thing. They will be my people and I myself will be their God. Jeremiah and the prophets and Ezekiel, time and time again, this repeated covenantal language, you're my people, I'm your God, I'm going to be with you, you're going to be with me. Very relational. It's about our union with the God who has made us and saved us. That's what's so great about heaven. God will be with us. We will be his people. God himself will be our God. The truth is, that's what each and every one of us have been made for. We ask all the time, why am I here? What's my purpose for existence? Maybe you're asking that question today. You were made to know, worship, serve, enjoy relationship with Almighty God. That's what you were made for. Don't let anyone in this world tell you anything different. And we see that that's what God gives here at the second coming of Jesus. 
his presence with his people. Expect that. It's a great expectation, and we're barely getting started here this morning. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And going back to verse 1, the sea was no more. Listen, not only will God make a new community who live in a new creation, not only at the second coming will that happen, not only will what? God come to make a home with his people, but we see that God will indeed bring an end to all things that cause us sorrow. Really, he will bring an end to the source of all of our sorrows. Somebody say amen to that. That it will not just be a, a, a symptomatic relief. You feel bad? Here, feel better. It will be the eradication of everything that caused that pain. Vanish. The sea will be no more is such a read over. But I want to show you, as I was smacked over the head this week in my study, that it's not a read over. You know, when I read that, I said, okay, new heaven, new earth, first heaven's gone, and the sea was no more. Awesome, no more swimming in Lake Ontario for me in heaven. <laughs> Praise the Lord. No more water. No more seaweed, you know. No, is that what's happening here? The Atlantic Ocean is gone. Yay! Is that what's taking place? Is that the promise of the Scriptures? No, that's not it. Greg Beale, in his work on Revelation, showed in, in multiple ways, which I can't get into this morning, I'm sorry, that basically the sea was a metaphor for a number of things that really point to the origin of evil, the sea. It, it's, about, it's also a metaphor for the unbelieving, rebellious nations who are causing the tribulation for the people of God. It's the place of the dead. It's also the place of idolatrous trade activity, according to Beale. He says the sea is metaphorically representing the entire range of afflictions that formerly threatened God's people in the old world. Uppermost, tribulations resulting from oppression by the ungodly world. There will be no more trial over which to weep in the final order of things. So when it says the sea is no more, he's saying the source of all of your sorrow all that which has caused you to weep in this world, everything that has caused you pain, the system itself that has set itself up against me and you as my people, all of that will be gone. It'll be no more. The sea will be no more. The source of our sorrows, the very things that cause it will be evaporating, vanishing, poof, gone. It will not just simply be the, the symptomatic relief for us to make us feel better. There will be no possibility for sorrow because the very thing that have caused it for the people of God is now gone. 
That's why he can say he's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes, verse 4. That's why death shall be no more. That's why there'll be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The sea is gone. The things that have caused this are removed. The way I think about this is every time I walk into my basement, I know that I've got a moisture issue. Okay? It's in the back right corner. Even though the, the dehumidifier's there, I'm no dummy. I see the discoloration to the bottom right in the corner where the molding meets. And you know what I do? I keep that dehumidifier running, right? Suck it out of the air. And then, every once in a while, I, when nobody's looking, I grab my white paint and my paintbrush, and I just give it one of these. Good as new. No problems, right? So I think often we felt this way as we're anticipating the final end of all things that cause problems and wreak havoc in our lives. We're, we're, we're constantly applying some, some things again. Dealing with that sin, dealing with that sin, applying the blood of Jesus, right? So understand this, right? What we see taking place here is, is that, that God is dealing with the source. He's not just dealing with the surface, of all of our issues. So Satan, sin, the evil world, the system that has set itself up against God, all of that is now gone. God's dealing with the source of our sorrows. What a powerful statement. No more tears. Many of us watch the news. I've had conversations with people who are talking to me about what they see in the world. And they begin to weep. Identifying with the struggles of people. Feeling fear and anxiety. God, in the final order, is going to wipe away every tear. It's not just what we see on the news. It's what we experience in daily life. That personal pain. Sin of others, our own sin that brings tragedy and pain upon our own lives. God's going to wipe it away. He's going to take care of it. It's going to be gone. So whatever is causing you to weep in your struggle, in your life of faith, understand this, God will do something to forever remove the dampness from your cheek. The, the statement, death shall be no more. I can't help but think of our brother, Dan Hammond, who's in Indianapolis right now, staring at his mother lying in bed, dying too early from human expectation. There are multiple people in this congregation and in my life, probably your life, that are facing the reality of someone that they love who is close to the end. And you hear the statement, death shall be no more, and you recognize, yeah, we need that. Because what we experience is just, it shouldn't be. We should not be saying bye to loved ones. It should not be the case. But see, with the removal of sin, the removal of Satan, with the accuser thrown into the lake of fire, guess what? There's no more death. There's no more. Gone. Poof. Evaporate. It's a reality that will not infiltrate the new order as God is making it. Man, there's so much more that can be said here. 
No more grief. Some of us live in constant grief, constant mourning, constant sadness, living as a victim of of so many difficult situations. No more. No more pain. Many of us live with emotional, physical, spiritual pain constantly. There are uh, places out there that charge lots of money so that people can manage their physical pain. Guess what? Those places will be out of business in the kingdom of God. They'll have no need for them. But understand this, before we just think about it personally, in terms of, man, I'm physically hurt. I'm in a lot of pain. I really would like that to go away. Understand this, that that what he's talking about here is that everything that is pressuring you and pushing against you as you strive to be a faithful witness in the midst of a world that persecutes you, that's the kind of thing that is being taken away here. It's about us experiencing these things because of our faith in Jesus. Not just because we live in a fallen world. Expect God to remove the source of all of our sorrows. Someone say amen to that. Okay, I'm going to move along a little bit quickly and finish up here. Verse 5, I'm making all things new. It's not just a people, but everything is going to be new. It's going to be better. There's going to be infinitely uh, a glorious resurrection-based improvement to the quality of life for the people of God. Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Look at Simple as this. Expect God to actually do this. I'm making all things new. Next statement, it is done. Right? God has promised these things. These are visions. But understand this. They're as good as done. It's done. Finito. It's going to happen. So we understand that that God, once again, is revealing himself to be a God that makes a promise. And because he is the Alpha and the Omega, because he is the beginning and the end, he is sovereignly in control of every event to bring about all that he promises. It will happen. And so many of us live in a world right now where it just seems so far off. Christ's first coming seems so long ago, and Christ's second coming, well, soon, I guess. It seems so far off that maybe we begin to doubt whether or not it's actually going to occur. Look at friends. It is done. It's done. He's accomplished it. Again, I'm not saying he has now. I'm saying this is the vision of what will be. This is the consummation. It is as good as done. That kind of expectation, I think, speaks to how we live today, does it not? The second coming of Christ is a great expectation. It will be done. To the one who conquers, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped one. Some of you were getting excited. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. I think what we see here is that when Christ comes again, let us expect him to give and dispense his blessings to his covenant people. 
He's speaking to two people specifically. He's speaking to those who are thirsty. And I wonder if maybe that describes your spiritual state today. Maybe you come here in the midst of a dry season. Maybe you, like the psalmist, are saying, Oh my God, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Is this not what the people of God are experiencing in Revelation? They're living in a dry and weary land where there is no water. In their faithfulness to God to proclaim the gospel of Jesus and to live the gospel of Jesus in this world, they are now in a place of such spiritual thirst. They're the thirsty ones. I think for some of us, that, that may rock us. Wait, we're, to be the blessed people, we're, we're, we shouldn't be thirsty, right? But we see that the people of God are a thirsty people. They long for God. And, and I love the promise to those who are thirsty, to those who yearn and desire for the, the, the satisfaction of the water of life, which is a metaphor for eternal life. We see that in John 4. So if, if you're thirsting for that new creation, you're living in the pain of the temporary world order, and you long for the eternal order that God is bringing, and you're thirsting for that, guess what? The text says this, if you're thirsty, I'm going to give it to you. If you're spiritually thirsty for eternal life in the assurance of these promises, Jesus says, come and drink. Like Isaiah 55, come, come all you who are thirsty and buy water without any money. Some of you say, you know, Mike, that's, I've got nothing. I'm broke. I can't pay for this. I can't conjure up enough merit to, to deserve the right to drink from the cup of eternal life. Perfect. Because you can't buy it. Eternal life is not something that we, in our own merit, or because of our, our own righteousness, can purchase from God. It's a gift. It's a gift that God has given through His Son, Jesus Christ. So today, if, if you're wanting eternal life, the assurance of this new creation, of these new realities, understand where you get it. You get it from Jesus. Jesus promised that woman at the well, right? What did he say to her? He said, people who drink this water from this well, they're going to get thirsty again. But if they drink the water that I give them, what? They'll never be thirsty again. He's talking about eternal life. It's eternal in nature, the water that Jesus gives to drink. And the satisfaction is one that lasts forever, although we continue to long for more of it. That's the irony of it. Give me more of that which always satisfies. It's pretty awesome. So come to Jesus and drink. We also see that we can expect God to establish this father-son relationship with those who conquer. To the one who conquers, the text says, will have this heritage. 
I will be his God and he will be my son. What a place of standing. Right, again, we're, this is being written to people who are struggling against a world that is pushing back on their faith. And so the call for them is to stand firm. The call for us is to stand firm in the face of a world that lures us away, that lies to us and tries to deceive us into believing lies, into pursuing false gods, and to silence our witness in the world. And they're called to conquer. They're called to be victorious over all those pressures and temptations. But they get weary. And yet expectation proves to be a powerful tool for God. Right? To the one who conquers. So you're saying if I conquer, Lord, if I remain faithful, that you will reward me with this inheritance. That even though right now I'm not experiencing any temporal joys, that in this fight all that I have is you. Who have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire beside you. But understand this, that at the second coming of Jesus, that we receive the inheritance of being the Son of God. That's position. Some of you women are like, well, I'm, I'm a girl. Well, it's about the position of being the Son. You're, the point is, all those who believe and belong to Jesus and who conquer in this world will be the recipients of all of his blessing. Do you expect that? You expect to receive blessing in such a way that you now stand as the heir through your union with Jesus Christ. You're an heir of all of God's inheritance. Don't allow this world to promise you anything. When you begin to think about all that is God and all that is His, He's going to give to you as His Son. That's powerful promise. It's a great expectation, being adopted into his family as a son, Galatians 4. The second coming of Christ is a great expectation. That's what I'm trying to do for you. This is no small thing. And finally, we see the last verse. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion, their inheritance. Those who are not faithful to me, those who show that they are cowards in the face of a world, those who do not persevere in their faith, this will be their portion. It will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. See, this is the moment where we come to grips with another very true thing. When Jesus comes, expect judgment. Expect there to be the unleashing of God's righteous indignation upon all those who have set themselves against Him and His ways. At Renovation Church, we believe in the reality of hell. We don't talk about it enough, really. 
in an attempt to not scare people into the kingdom. We kind of stay away from this. But just as there is promise for those who are faithful, just as there is blessing for those who conquer, there is judgment for those who refuse to repent. To those who say no to the gift. That there is a reservation for the unrepentant, the unfaithful, with Satan and the beast, the false prophet, and everyone else. They don't receive eternal life. We're not inclusivists. We're not universalists. We believe in the exclusivity that through Jesus only... Will you be saved from what you deserve? Judgment because of your sin. See, we got real excited about the removal of sorrow. Yay! Removal of all that has caused it. Yay! No more crying. Yay! But what we understand is that what we're talking about is the complete eradication of all that is sinful. That could be us. We join in it. If we are not covered by the spotless blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. So if you're thirsty, come and drink for free. Don't refuse the water of eternal life. Turn to Christ. Don't be a coward spiritually and believe the lies of this world. Repent of your sexual immorality. Repent of your lying. Turn to God. He will receive you. But if he does, if you do not, expect judgment. Expect judgment. This is the great expectation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you something, and I'm going to close now. Does this do anything to you? Like, when you hear these promises, does it affect you? Does it move you? Is this just another Sunday for us? I must confess, and even in the process of preparation, I read these things and they just kind of bounce off my heart. But that's not what the intention of them being recorded were. You see, these were people struggling with an evil world. And when God set these expectations, when John saw these visions and they were read to all the churches, it was intended to have a monumental impact on their everyday existence. This great expectation was set for them so that they would have a great endurance in their struggle against sin and evil in the world. And then when everyone said, shut up about Jesus, they continued to be faithful, to proclaim and live the message that had radically transformed their life. Does this move us? I pray it does. I pray that I'm not just preaching some cute sermon. We're not just going to church with the, with the wreaths and the lights. 
but that the Word of God has grabbed your soul today and that you will obey no matter what it costs. You will not compromise your convictions. You will love others. Please don't go beating people up with them. You will love others with a, with a godly love. You will serve them. You will sacrifice. You will give. You will refuse to let other people deal with their own burdens, but you will bear them. But you know what? When people tell you to not talk about Jesus, you can't do that, we will say, no, we are on orders from the king to proclaim a witness to the world of the goodness and the glory of Jesus. We will not be quiet, no matter what it costs. And we can do this with joy and anticipation because God has set this expectation. Expectation produces endurance. Don't give up. What does Churchill say, right? Never give up. Never, 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 never. Never give in. Never. Except to what? Good virtue, convictions of honor, and good sense. Close. Never quit in the face of your enemy. The second coming of Jesus is a great expectation. Let's pray. Lord, we just simply ask that you, by your Spirit, would cause us to be your faithful witnesses on the basis of your promises that we have simply scratched the surface on today. In this Christmas season, may the expectation cause faithfulness in us. May the expectation of your second coming cause endurance. May we never quit. And if there's anyone here today that is spiritually thirsty for forgiveness of sin, for righteousness as a gift, for eternal life, and the assurance of all these things as their impending future, we pray that they would come and drink from the waters of life from the hands of Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.